<clears throat> our scripture reading is in Mark 10, 32 through 45. That's Mark 10, 32 through 45. <clears throat> they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going to, up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will, he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not as so among us. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. The first book of the Harry Potter series. You're like, Harry who? If you don't know who that is, you can ask your kid or grandkid at lunch today. I can fill you in. In the first book of the series, though, we learn that evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry... Uh, when he's just a child, but he can't touch him. When he goes to harm Harry instead of harming Harry, he experiences agonizing pain and recoils at the attempt to harm him. And as the story unfolds, you see Harry come to his mentor, Dumbledore, and ask him, why couldn't he touch me? Like, why couldn't he do anything? Why couldn't he harm me? And D Dumbledore replies to him, your mother died to save you. And love as powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. It's not a scar, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. This is not a Christian book necessarily written from a Christian worldview. 
It's not intentionally giving shadows of the gospel like books um, that you may read with your kids, like the Chronicles of Narnia. So why then is it such a powerful image? Why does it leave such a mark as we read it? Why is it so moving even for children to read? They understand the gravity and the weight of that thought as Dumbledore explains it to Harry. I think it's because there's something deep down inside of us that understands and realizes, longs for even good news. But, but not just good news, understanding that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. Sacrifice is at the heart of real love. If you think about it, even in your own life, the, the people that have had a real impact on you, the people that have made a difference in your life, not just small things, but big things. So parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, mentors, friends, spouses. Think about the way that those that have made the, the most profound impact on your life, think about the way that they've sacrificed themselves in some way, time or money or effort. Um, they've accepted some kind of hardship at your expense, on your behalf. And in some way, they've, they've demonstrated love to you by sacrificing and that left an impact, a mark on you. I think we understand that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And listen real clearly, because this is the point. We most clearly see that. We most beautifully see that in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the truest and fullest, most clear, most beautiful picture of love that anyone can imagine. And if you hear that and your first thought is, this dude's lost his mind. This preacher is absolutely off his rocker. You see, you hear the words beauty and cross together and you think, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sit well with me. Uh, this guy's lost his mind. You're, you're, you're skeptical of the Christian faith, of the Christian worldview. You may think then that the Bible is just giving another example of an ancient, bloodthirsty, primitive God being worshipped by primitive, bloodthirsty societies. And even we see in, in classic literature like the Iliad by Homer, Agamemnon could not sell to Troy until he'd sacrificed his own daughter to the, the wrath, to appease the wrath of the gods. And you may think, well, Mark's just telling another story like that. He's recording a similar type event in the life of Jesus. A savage, ancient culture by, ruled by an irritated god that's demanding a blood sacrifice so that he'll release slaves and innocent people. And that's not at all what's happening. That's not at all what we see in the gospel. And say, well, Matt, if, if God is so loving, if the God that you worship is so loving, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Why did Jesus have to go all the, all the way through this suffering, go to the cross and have to die? Why did Jesus have to be a ransom? As Wiley just read in verse 45. And here it is. We'll spend the next half hour unpacking this idea, but here's the start of it. And don't miss this, because if you miss this, it, you miss everything. Jesus did not die because there was an absence of God's love. Jesus died precisely because of God's love. And this is what he's going to unfold for us in the Gospel of Mark today. This is what he's going to teach his disciples in chapter 10 that we're walking through. This is what it means when we talk about the Gospel, the good news, that there's a glorious exchange that takes place when in love Jesus substituted himself in our place. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, not because his hand was forced, but simply out of incredible love substituted his perfect life for our rebellious one. And so to recap a bit where we've been, just so that we're caught up, we've been studying through Mark's gospel. We've been going verse by verse through the chapters in Mark. 
And we get to verse 45, which we'll cover today, but it could almost serve as a thesis statement for Mark. Almost the purpose in which Mark is writing in one sentence. So read again verse 45. We'll circle back here later, but I want to show this to you because I think it helps to remind us where we've been. It's a, it's a way that we can recap even the whole book of Mark. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Show you how this is almost Mark's outline. In the first eight chapters, chapter one through eight, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Son of Man. You see it there in verse 45, even the Son of Man. He's showing us that Jesus is God Himself, and He's doing that by demonstrating Jesus' authority. He has authority over nature, He has authority over sickness, even death and demons. Jesus has authority, and we saw all of that as we walked through chapters one through eight. Then you get to the middle section, the section that we're in right now, chapters 8 through 10. And many people call this the great discipleship discourse. It's the most sustained and specific teaching on discipleship in the New Testament. If you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this is where he teaches you that. And you see it again in verse 45. So even the Son of Man, and you see the second section, this middle section, came not to be served, but to serve. That's what he's teaching. If you want to follow Jesus, if you're going to be my disciple, it looks like servanthood. And then the final section, the last part of that verse, and to give his life as a ransom for many, we're going to see a transition happen in chapter 11 where Jesus is going to make a beeline for the cross. And even now, we're leading up to that where Jesus has his resolve, his focus is set on the cross, on the hill of Calvary. And we see that in the last part of verse 45, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so <clears throat> we see all three parts of Mark's gospel summarized in this one verse. It's, a, it's the hinge for us. It's, it's where he's summarizing everything he's been doing, teaching us that he's the son of man, showing us how he serves, but showing us his mission is to head straight to the cross where he'll give a, uh, his life for his people. It's a ransom. And so if we're his followers, then our lives will look like his. And so this morning, let's trace out what it means to be seeing Christ as our servant king, this teaching on what servanthood looks like. Um, and, 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 and I think we use that word frequently in the church, servant king, but don't let the weight of that wash over you. Don't let the magnitude of those two words being used together pass by you. He's a king, yes, he is the king of the universe, but he came and humbly served by offering up his own life. So he's our servant king. And so four, four points this morning as we walk through verse 32 through 45 that you just heard read for you. Number one, see the price our servant king pays. See the price our servant king pays. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And Jesus leaves no question here in these first verses that we're studying this morning about the purpose in which he came, the reason he came to earth, fans, he came to die. He's repeatedly told his disciples this. In fact, by this point, they've already heard this news twice. First in Mark chapter 8. Remember, if, if you remember back to chapter 8, he asked them, who do men say that I am? And Peter has the right answer, you are the Christ. Though he didn't understand what even that meant, he had the right answer. And then on that confession, on the, on the hills of Peter saying that, Jesus for the first time teaches them that he will die. 
He's, he's come to the earth to die. And then again, he does uh, the same thing in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. He again teaches them that he will die and rise again. But just in case they or we today have missed it, he repeats this again for the third time in chapter 10. You saw it in 33 through 34. Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him. They'll put him to death. It'll look like spitting on him and flogging him, killing him, but in three days he'll rise. And this time, Jesus gives even greater details than he did before. It's building. You can see that. He's not only saying it. Mark says he says it. uh, He spoke plainly about this. Well, this time in chapter 10, you think of all the additional details that he's added. He's giving you the where. His death would be in Jerusalem. Where are they headed? They're headed to Jerusalem. He's given him the who. Or the disciples. He's given them the who. The, The Jews and Gentiles will reject him. Chapter 8 told us that he would be rejected by the the, the priests and the scribes, but now he's clarifying and saying that uh, that it will be Jews and Gentiles. And furthermore, he gives us the how. He shows us how they're going to kill him. uh, He's going to be rejected, and that they'll condemn him to death. This is legal language. He's showing them that, uh, that he's going to be tried and executed within the criminal justice system. It's going to be a big deal. He's going to be put on trial. They're going to condemn him and then execute him. And you think of all that he's sharing with them and then add to that the, the, the vivid, graphic, violent description that he gives them. It's the first time. He said, they're going to mock, they're going to spit upon, they're going to flog and kill me. He's giving them these incredible details about what's about to transpire. And so there's many things we see here. First of, of, of which, and, and don't miss this, His death was not secondary or supplemental to his mission. It was indeed his mission. It was the primary reason that he came. It was the central uh, reason that he came. It was the the purpose behind his his mission. It was the reason he was on this planet. He came to offer his life to die. This is the price that our servant king paid. Even in verse 32, it says this, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And you, and you picture this image, right? And the disciples didn't understand. They just thought they were traveling, doing more ministry. They'd heard him predict his death, but they didn't get it. They missed the gravity here, but I, I don't think we should miss the gravity here. Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem. The king, it says, is leading. He's walking ahead of them. He's leading them to his own death. He's counted the cost of their redemption and our redemption, and nothing will stop him on his march to Calvary. See the resolve in Christ. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And he was walking ahead of them. He was leading them to redemption. He endured the penalty of, this, of, of the cross. He endured our sin and the penalty of our sin on the cross. He died to take our penalty for anger, for gluttony, or for marital unfaithfulness. He was taking all of that on himself as he was headed to Jerusalem to be hung on a tree and die. Second thing, I think God sovereignly laid out the path and the plan that Jesus walked. You see this. Watch the the use of the word will in verses 33 and 34. The Son of Man will be delivered. They will condemn him. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise. Friends, none of this was accident. None of this was coincidence. None of this just happened or transpired by accident. God purposed it from the beginning for your salvation and for mine. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. 
I think the same thing can be said of our lives. God orchestrates the steps of our lives. Every last detail, every last breath, and every last heartbeat. Jesus was sent to serve. We have been sent to serve in whatever suffering that serving brings. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. They're just passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You can trust this, friend. Whatever you're walking through right now, it's not accident. It's not coincidence. All of this, even in Christ's life, was planned and purposed in the will of God. And so see the price of our servant king. See the price our servant king has paid. But then also... As we are to be his followers, as we are to follow in his steps, as his disciples, that's what he's teaching his disciples, what that looks like, we must also see that our king, the servanthood that he's modeled for us, is going to cause us to die to a lot of things in our lives. And those next three points will kind of unpack that. Number two, so see the price our servant king paid. Number two, see the pride our servant king expels. See the pride our servant king expels. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? By this point, you would think the disciples would be getting it, but they're not. Jesus has already predicted his death three times. Mark's told us that he spoke plainly about this, but we know they're not getting it by this request, right? James and John come up and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And it's really sad, too, if you look at the other Gospels. Matthew's Gospel actually shows us that they put their mama up to the job. They made her do their dirty work. They go back to the question. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's a great way to approach the Lord, right? Hey, God, um, I have a humble request. And I want you to do it exactly like I tell you to. I want you to do exactly for me what I'm going to ask you to do. And before you criticize the disciples here, right? Like they're knuckleheads. We get that. But before we criticize them, ask yourself how many of your prayers sound like that. This expectation that God would do exactly what you're saying, exactly like you want it done. Jesus deals with them graciously, though. That's who he was. That's who he is. He doesn't say, "Um, you want to start over? You want to you backtrack a little bit? Better check yourself before you wreck yourself? Do you realize who you're talking to? He had all authority, all honor, all privilege to be able to, to call them on the table like that, but he doesn't. He simply says, what do you want? And then the reply, verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, you might be wondering, what are these knuckleheads thinking? And that would be an appropriate question. In your glory, that language there that it uses in verse 37 is when you're on your throne. Now remember what they're thinking. They're still thinking military Messiah. They're still thinking someone's going to come in and overthrow Rome with military strength. And so when Jesus is on his throne, the people to the right of him and the left of him are his prime minister, his chief of staff. They're the, they're the important rulers that are ruling with the one on the throne. And so they think that they're coming to Jesus and they're, they're, they're seeking this power. They want to be in powerful, powerful positions in his cabinet. They want to be his right-hand men. It reveals that they, they still have no idea why Jesus came. 
that they're consumed with pride and selfishness, their own interests, self-serving interests, and they have a superficial understanding about what it means to follow Jesus. If this is what it means, we want your right hand and your left hand, Jesus. And here's the irony of this. Don't miss this, because I think Mark's intentional here as he's recounting this story, as he's teaching us about servanthood and, and discipleship following Jesus. What was Jesus' greatest moment of glory? I think, think about that question for a second. What was Jesus' greatest moment of glory? Where does Jesus most clearly show us the glory of God's justice? Where does Jesus most clearly communicate the glory of God's love? It's in the cross. And Danny Aiken, in his commentary, brings this out, and this is, this is great insight. He says, at the time of the Lord's greatest glory, there were indeed men on his right and left, but they were not two apostles on thrones. They were two criminals on crosses. I think we should check ourselves here. I think the scriptures should be used to check our hearts. Do our lives look more like servant-hearted humility? Or do our lives more, look more like this? Prideful, self-serving, thinking of our own interests. Our servant king came to expel our pride. And he continues, Jesus does this. He shows them the error in their prideful thinking. If you, if you continue in verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus undercuts their pride with the cross. Don't, don't miss this, friends. For us this morning that may struggle with pride, with struggle, struggle with serving ourselves, nothing uproots feelings of superiority better and quicker than a clear picture of Almighty God being mocked and beaten and hanging on a cross constructed by the hands of His own creation. If you're struggling with pride, if you see yourself putting yourself before others on a daily, weekly basis, let that thought uproot those feelings of superiority. See a clear picture of Christ, the King of the universe, hanging on a cross, suffering at the hands of His own creation, and let that outroot, let that bring out any pride that you may be struggling with today or this week or this month. He does this by using the language of a cup and a baptism. Let's dive in there and see what he's talking about. The idea of a cup in the, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and this time, the idea of sharing a cup with someone had a couple different uh, implications. To share a cup with someone was the idea of, of sharing in someone's fate. To share a cup with someone was to identify with someone to the point that you share in their destiny. We get a glimpse of this, right, when we're at weddings and you raise a toast or you raise a glass to the, to the happy couple. You get a picture of this. We're, we're, we're joining ourselves in their celebration of marriage, in their new future together, in their destiny together. We're congratulating them. And all of that is, is wrapped up in the sharing of a cup together. But there's another picture. There's another picture for the cup in the Bible. And this is the one that may be a little more common to us. The idea of the cup was talking about the wrath of God, God's coming judgment. You see this in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The idea of a cup being the, the pouring out of God's wrath towards sin. And so when Jesus talks about the cup, I believe both of these ideas are, are, are being taken in. Both of these ideas are being considering. Yes, he's identifying with us to the point that he's taking our destiny He's not just identifying that destiny. He's actually taking that destiny, the, the sin that we brought forth, He's taking that destiny and God's wrath, God's cup of wrath, the punishment that was due for that sin, he's taking that. 
That's what he's talking about. He says, can you drink this cup? And then the baptism. So what's this language about baptism? When we talk about baptism, we usually mean the act, the ordinance that we see, where a person is immersed in water after they become a follower of Jesus. They go under, they're plunged into the water, and it's a picture of what God's done in their life. Jesus' use here is a bit different, though. Indeed, he was immersed, he was plunged, he was overwhelmed, he was flooded, but not with physical water. He was plunged into the destiny planned for him by God. He was immersed under the full weight of God's wrath. Why? For our redemption. Why? For the pride that even brought this whole question up in the first place from James and John. And so this thought, these words, they're so heavy on Jesus, this idea of cup and baptism, they're so heavy on Jesus leading up to his death that you think about even in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he's praying, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This image of a cup stayed with Jesus. This image of baptism, Luke 12, Luke 12, verse 50. But I have this baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. These two images were not light images for Christ. They were heavy and weighty thoughts. And in their pride, in their lack of understanding, in their arrogance, James and John blurt out, look, verse 39, and they said to him, we're able. We're able to do it. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And their eyes are so fixed on their prize. Their eyes are so fixed on a seat of power and authority that they blurt out, we're able to do it. Let us have it. We want it. Let us do it. And Jesus clarifies that unbeknownst to them, they will indeed, they are ordained to a similar destiny, to a similar fate. And you think about even in, 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 in this prophecy that Jesus is speaking over them, James, the first apostle martyred in Acts chapter 12, John, experienced incredible persecution under uh, Domitian and was, it was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And we see that in Revelation 1. So indeed, they will suffer. Jesus is making that clear from the beginning. To be my disciples will be to suffer. So much for the prosperity gospel. But this question would not be answered because it was the wrong question. The pathway to glory is characterized by servanthood, by suffering. Before the crown, the cup of suffering had to be consumed. Before blessings, the baptism of wrath had to bear down on Christ. And he understood this, and this was weighty on him. And so when you read this, when you read these silly questions from these disciples, don't let your question be, how can these fools keep missing it? But instead, let your question be, how am I missing it right now? How am I walking in pride or arrogance or self-serving attitudes Let the suffering of Christ be a litmus test for your pride right now today. So a reminder, see the price our servant king pays. See the pride our servant king expels. Number three, see the priorities our servant king reorders. See the priorities our servant king reorders. Look at verse 41. And when the ten, that's the other disciples, when the ten heard it, they became uh, indignant at James and John. Why are they indignant? Is, is it a righteous anger? Are they angry because they have this pride in their heart and they're, they're asking Jesus these silly questions as Jesus is on the road to Calvary? No. They're indignant because they didn't think of it first. They wanted power too, and they're, they're kind of hate. They're, they're day late and a dollar short. We wish we'd have had this question first. And yet Jesus steps in and he uses this as another opportunity to teach them, to teach his disciples about 
what it means to be a servant. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus gathers the guys together after this, this scene is unfolded. He's already been teaching James and John the problem with their question. The disciples, the other ten, step up, and they're angry because they didn't think of it first. And Jesus gathers them all together, and he's like, hey, guys, you know the rulers of the Gentiles? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, we do. You know how they rule by lording over people? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can, you can, you can feel the, the, the baiting, right? <laughs> he's baiting them. You know the great ones that they have and how they, they exercise authority over them? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah, we do. Is, is this, is this what you're going to say? Is, is, is this going to be the case for us? Is this going to be us, Jesus? No. As in fact, it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. Jesus is not describing what their authority, what their power will look like. Instead, he's making a contrast for them. Your lives won't look like that. He gives examples for how most of the world tries to influence Society, how most of, of the world today, even in our culture, would want to lord over and use power and authority for their own benefit. They have power, they have wealth, they have connections. They lord that authority over people. They rule over people with power. Not so among you, Jesus says. Your priorities must be different. Influence gained by power and control doesn't change society. It doesn't change hearts. I'm calling you to be radically different, Jesus says. So be so sacrificially loving to the people around you. Put away self-serving to the point that you would be so sacrificially loving to the people around you who don't believe like you that it will be soon impossible to imagine the place without you. They'll, they'll, they'll trust you because they'll see that the way that you're looking out for them, you're not serving your own interests, but you're serving them as well. That kind of influence, that kind of, of serving and loving servanthood is what is going to win. That's the, the banner with which you're supposed to go. It's the way I came. Our priorities shift when we see this in our servant king. This is not just something he told them to do. I mean, think about Jesus. How did he respond to his enemies? He could have called down a legion of angels to destroy his enemies. The Bible tells us he could have done that, but he, but he didn't. He didn't do that. Instead, he died for his enemies. And as he was dying for them, he prays for them. Church family, at the very heart of our worldview is a man dying for his enemies. We can't claim that. We can't claim that we, that we believe our worldview is centered around a man dying for his enemies and have the same priorities as the world. Our priorities must change. Put away any ideas of power and control and authority and instead take up the attitude of service and love. That's what he's teaching his disciples. Two words that he uses here to emphasize this. Verse 43, the word servant, diakonos. We've seen this word come up already in Mark's gospel. It's a table waiter, a household servant that washes feet and changes diapers. The second word in verse 44, slave, doulos. It's a person owned by God to serve a fellow man. It's the type of person that will have the mind of Christ, the type of person that will esteem others better than himself, the type of person that will put others' interests before his own. And Jesus knew that this is absolutely countercultural. This is, this is the furthest thing from our natural thinking. And so in the last few opportunities he has to teach his disciples before his death, this is what he's focusing on. 
Why? Because it's so unlike us. So, see the price our servant king paid. See the pride that our servant king expels. See the priorities that our our servant king reverses. And then finally, number four, see the picture our servant king provides. See the picture our servant king provides. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all of this that he's been teaching them, correcting James and John's thinking, correcting the disciples when they get indignant about wishing that they would have thought first, that that they would have had this kind of power and authority, even going back to his, his prediction of his death, the third prediction of his death, all of this hinges on verse 45. For even the Son of Man, who could have rightfully claimed these things, did not come to be served, but to serve. Earlier, Jesus told us where he would die, Jerusalem. And now he's telling us why he would die. Jesus came not to be served, but to die, to give his life as a ransom for ours. It sets him apart from every other founder of every other major world religion. And those other religions, the founder, the purpose that he came was to live and to be an example. Jesus' purpose was to die and be a sacrifice. That's radically different. That's why it's gospel good news and not just routine religion. And so what do we see in this verse? Look at the use of the word came. Don't don't pass over or miss little things like this because it's not a little thing. The Son of Man came. In this simple uh, five-word phrase, we see that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem, right? His birth in Bethlehem was not the beginning of his existence. It was just a change in location because he existed from eternity past. He came. The Son of Man came. He wasn't created. It wasn't the beginning or initiation of Jesus. It was simply a change in location. He came. And you see this in Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, the Son of Man came. Don't miss the eternality of Christ even in those five words. Second, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. In this statement, we see that he had every right to expect to be served. He is the Son of God. He is God himself, the one who created all things. And though he had every right to be honored and privileged, yet when he came, he didn't exercise that privilege He gave his life as a ransom for many. And this is the crux of the gospel. And this is ultimately why Mark is writing his gospel. And this is ultimately why we're not wasting our time here today worshiping him. (laughs) These nine words. To give his life as a ransom for many. Christianity moves from being organized religion to glorious gospel good news. Jesus came to be a substitutionary sacrifice. He came to substitute his perfect life for our rebellious ones. A couple disclaimers here when we hear the word ransom. I just want to clarify this because we could get in some really bad theology if we're, not, if we're not careful. When you see the word ransom here, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. We use that word now, like when you hear that word, we most often think of a kidnapping, right? I mean, we've all seen the movies. You have until 9 p.m. to meet me at Central Bank with $1 million or you'll never see your cat Fluffy again. Oh, yeah, and don't call the cops, right? And we're all on, our edge of our, on the edge of our seats. We're wondering, is the owner going to, to come and, and, and pay the million dollars? Will he, will he pay up and will Fluffy be rescued? Or does he let Cat Fluffy go to be with his new owners? Right? <laughs> Been my option. This is not the sense in which the word ransom is used here. I want to show you the difference. Because in that scenario, 
the one who is, has done the capturing, the one who has, is lording over Fluffy, is being paid something for the release of, of Fluffy. But that's not what's going on here. There's, listen, friends, there's no sense, there's no thought in the Bible that a ransom was paid to Satan. There's no sense in which the ransom was paid to Satan. At the cross, Satan received one thing, death, <laughs> defeat, ruin, eternal punishment. That's it. He didn't get anything from Jesus in that action. Additionally, the, Christ, the, the price that Christ paid for our redemption was not taken from him. And so we had to be careful the way we're thinking about this. He freely laid down his life. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he joyfully gave his life. And, and so don't, don't be mistaken, friend. He is the great giver of life, not the pitiful victim. And so when we hear ransom language, don't think victim. Think victor. <laughs> John 10, 18 summarizes this. It says, no one takes, uh, speak, Jesus speaking of his own life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And so then what do we learn from this ransom language with those disclaimers out there? We learn that this substitution that was made, that Christ substituting himself for us, is a beautiful and wonderful exchange something that we don't deserve. It's called grace. That we never deserved this, but he offered himself up. We needed a ransom because we had gladly and willingly sold ourselves into the bondage of sin. We chose sin. In all different varieties and forms, each to our own liking, we have pursued sin. And when he purchases us, our slave masters, sin, death, and Satan, have to release us. They no longer have ownership over us. 1 Peter 1.18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, friends, the, the, the payment, the ransom's not directed at the devil, but toward God. God's holiness, don't miss this, God's holiness, his righteousness demanded that sin be dealt with. He can't just give a pass to sin. But here's the beauty in the gospel. Here's how it's different from every other religion in the world. God's love in Christ provided the payment for God's righteous demand. That's the gospel. That we had prostituted ourselves away to Satan and to sin. Jesus sees our pitiful condition and instead of leaving us there, he offers himself to pay the ransom. He redeems us out of slavery and brings us into the Father's house as children. No longer slaves, but children. That's the beauty of the gospel and we sang this last week. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? How can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And that should be our response when we see what's been done on our behalf, when we see the way that this servant king laid down his life and paid the ransom that we owed. There's nothing here that we do but worship. Full atonement. How can it be, God, that, that, that my life will be traded for his? That's the beauty of the gospel. And so how do we apply this? What do we, what do, we do in the text like this? I, th I pray that you're in a growth group or some type of a small group community where you can talk about this in detail with other believers. How do we live out these kind of gospel truths? But I'll give you some places to start. Number one, marvel at the gospel. 
Never lose a sense of awe and wonder at the gospel. The servant king died in your place. Worship him. He is worth your worship. Second, how does seeing this servant king humble you? How does seeing this servant king eliminate pride in your life? Third, how does seeing this servant king reverse the priorities that we have in life? This is so unnatural for us to be thinking of other people before ourselves. How does seeing this servant king reverse those priorities? Third, how does seeing this servant king change the way we lead? Many of you are in places of leadership. Many of you have people that work under you. Your bosses at work, your teachers, your parents. How does leading look different once you see this servant king and the humility with which he served? And how does seeing this servant king compel us to love even our enemies? This is hard. Because there are just some, some, some people in this world that would love nothing more than to defame you, destroy you, slander you, physically harm you if they could. And we've been called to love them. So how does seeing our servant king love his enemies compel us to that kind of unnatural, radical love? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your word. Because even when it's hard and even when we don't want to obey, it's clear. And then on top of it being clear, you've given us your spirit that produces obedience in us, produces faith in us, causes us to believe and to follow. And so we ask you to do that in these moments. Help us to see our Savior King and the price that was paid on our behalf. And help us to live differently in light of that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you would, let's stand. Let's respond by singing. If you're here this morning and you've never, never placed your faith and trust in that King, the one that substituted himself for you, took your penalty and gave you his righteousness, I pray you do that today. I'll be available. I'd love to talk to you right now. Or I'll linger after the service, but don't leave today without knowing this king. Church family, let's respond as we sing, as we observe this king, ask him to change our hearts.